This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Christian Bajan from Historical Materialism and welcome to this session on the 2020 US election, Bourgeois Democracy in Crisis. So, as you uh, will have noticed, our ingenious plan to delay the counting of the votes in Pennsylvania so that we could have this session on time worked out uh, exactly right. Uh, and so we're very lucky to be able to have three excellent speakers to address the question of uh, the U.S. election. Uh, first of all, we will be having uh, Megan Day, who's a staff writer at Jacobin, co-author of uh, Bigger Than Bernie with um, uh, Michael Utrecht, a book that came out uh, with Verso last year, I think, or earlier this year, um, and a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, then we have uh, Kalia Kuna, who luckily has managed to uh, join us despite some, some, uh, some health issues, but we're very pleased to have him. He's um, uh, active, uh, an active member of uh, Corporation Jackson in Mississippi. Um, and uh, then we have Peter Drucker. Peter Drucker will be also familiar to a number of you. He's a comrade uh, based in Amsterdam, uh, but originally obviously from the U.S., uh, the author of um, two uh, very important books. Uh, one is called Warped. Uh, it's in the historical materialism book series, and it's on um, uh, queer liberation and Marxism. And the other is uh, called Max Schachtman and His Left, very important biography of Max Schachtman, which we're hoping to do a new edition of in the historical materialism book series at some point. Um, so, uh, all the speakers will be speaking for uh, 15, 20 minutes, um, and then we will have uh, some time for discussion. Um, the discussion will be via the comments on the YouTube channel, which uh, will be being passed to me, duly uh, filtered and uh, filleted uh, by Sean. Uh, and then, uh, obviously, uh, we'll try and organize them around groups of questions. Uh, we're going to try and keep this session to uh, an hour and a half, two hours, depending on uh, how things um, pan out. So uh, we'll start with uh, Megan. Hi, Hi everyone. Uh, go ahead, Sebastian. Biden Freud already, you can see. <laughs> Uh, hi everyone, it's great to to be here. Um, you know, this the the title of this is bourgeois democracy in crisis. Um, this was planned and titled before our present moment. I think it's really interesting that we're talking as we speak. There are people in the streets of densely populated American cities. They're honking their horns. They're waving Biden Harris signs, and many of them are just elated that Donald Trump is no longer going to be the president of the United States. He's been uh, declared by the mainstream networks to be uh, the loser of the presidential election. And they have every reason to, to feel this way, um, given Donald Trump's 
politics is sort of odious and dangerous politics. Um, but there also is a sense uh, that you, you, you've seen percolating all the way leading up to the election, and I think that is pervasive right now, that people are actually celebrating the idea that bourgeois democracy is actually not in crisis, that it has, has experienced a sort of restoration or a rehabilitation with the ousting of, of Donald Trump, and that this is a return to normalcy. Um, my contention would be that bourgeois democracy actually is in crisis, but the crisis is protracted. And that part of that crisis is the periodic illusion of rehabilitation or restoration, um, such as what we're seeing at the moment. I, for one, am obviously relieved that uh, Donald Trump will no longer be our, our president for a variety of reasons, um, which I think probably bear need no explanation to this audience. Um, but I also am very wary of a potential Biden administration, which is something that I'm going to get into uh, as I move through this talk. But I'm going to break up my, my comments into four sections. First, I want to start with a comment on the Democratic Party primary and, and what the left experienced during that time. And then I want to talk about what happened during the general election, what we just witnessed. And then I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what I just mentioned, the coming Biden administration and what we can expect. And finally, how the left ought to, the American left ought to comport ourselves in the short to medium term, given the inevitability now. I think inevitability. I know that Trump will um, continue to stomp his feet, but I, I think that our institutions are a bit too durable for that to work. But yeah, the inevitability of a, of a Biden-Harris administration, what the left should do about that. So to begin with, um, the primary, the, the Democratic Party primary in which Bernie Sanders ran against a host of centrist Democrats was a uh, extremely generative time for the U.S. left. Uh, but it, it's it's caused you know um, a kind of a roller coaster effect for a lot of for a lot of American leftists. So if we had been able to plan, if we had been able to draw up a blueprint for how we would have liked to arrive at the point when we had a self-avowed democratic socialist running for the highest office in uh, you know the beating heart of global capitalism, we would have drawn it up quite differently from what actually happened. We would have. Um, built, for example, an independent workers' party. Uh, we would have had that party deeply, deeply integrated into the multiracial working class all the way from the ground on up. And we would have had um, strong, durable institutions. And we would have had uh, the candidate arising from those institutions and accountable to those institutions. That's how we would have preferred to go about getting to the point where we had a candidate running for president. Um, that's not what happened. In fact, our institutions were uh, eviscerated over the course of a 50-year counteroffensive uh, against the rise of, of organized labor and uh, the civil rights movement and so on. And um, we have no workers' party to speak of. Instead, we have two uh, avowedly capitalist parties in the United States, which split the allegiance of the capitalist class and also split the allegiance of the working class. Um, what the Bernie Sanders campaigns have done is given us an opportunity to look around, recognize each other, and begin to actually do the work of building the kind of thing that we would have preferred to have already been in place by the time we got to a Bernie Sanders candidacy. Um, this has been tough, I think, in many ways for uh, many, for, for American leftists who are invested in, in uh, electoral politics, which I think is the majority of American leftists. 
um, because the feeling that we had, especially during the second Bernie Sanders candidacy, it was a feeling of agency and empowerment and momentum. And then it seemed like it got louder and louder. And then once Bernie Sanders conceded, it's like it cut to white noise. And of course, we were in the middle of a pandemic. We were isolated from each other. The campaign was over. It was unclear what left's prospects were. And I think that was quite demoralizing for a lot of people. Uh, Micah Utrecht, my co-author, and I went on a sort of digital book tour in the first months of the pandemic for our book, Bigger Than Bernie, how we go from the Sanders campaign to democratic socialism. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that we were picking up a lot of people off the floor. People were feeling quite demoralized um, by this experience. I think what I what I came to realize through that through that process is that the Bernie Sanders candidacy, the second one in particular, was almost serving in an ad hoc fashion the function of a workers' party. It was like a temporary workers' party in a sense, um, in the sense that it gave people a, a platform, a, a pro worker, anti racist, um, anti sexist platform to unite behind, um, uniting disparate elements of the left and bringing people into the left. It raised the general expectations of the American working class by popularizing that platform against all odds and against all naysaying from both Republicans and the centrist Democratic Party establishment. It gave people the opportunity through the campaign itself, which I can attest to because I was a participant in the Democratic Socialists of America's campaign for Bernie Sanders, which was an independently run socialist campaign for Bernie Sanders, to develop political leadership, to develop political skills, to develop political relationships. I mean, these are the kinds of things that you would expect a workers' party to be able to generate. And it was like, temporarily, there was a phenomenon that was producing that, and then it went away. And I think people felt, uh, for a brief moment, that that it was an illusion or a mirage. And that's that was the source of a lot of people's political depression in the aftermath of, of Bernie Sanders' uh, concession. Um, I would challenge, and what I tried to explain to people, is that it wasn't a mirage, it was a projection into the future, which is to say it's the kind of thing that we can have if we now go about the painstaking work of building it from the ground up, um, which is a decades-long process that must begin immediately. And that we have the resources at our disposal, and hopefully many people through that process came to realize that we do have the resources at our at our disposal to be able to undertake a project of that ambition and magnitude. So, um, so that's where we're at with uh, the left. I don't think the left has been, you know, um, entirely demoralized. I don't want to paint too grim of a picture. There's actually obviously the the by June the the Black Lives Matter movement had re-energized large sections of the American left, including. Um, sections that were not as interested in the Bernie Sanders campaign or electoral politics and elements of uh, the Bernie campaign that then moved very swiftly into Black Lives, uh, into Black Lives Matter. We're on the streets, you know, holding signs, um, squaring off against the police and so on. And that furthermore, we've had other electoral victories over the summer and fall. The Democratic Socialists of America has, for example, elected um, I don't know if it's, can't remember if it's four or five state legislators to the New York state legislature in Albany. This is a similar strategy to what you've seen in Chicago, where uh, there are several, I think six Democratic Socialists of America members on the Chicago City Council, and they're operating in blocks. So it's not just individual Democratic Socialists, it's groups of them who are caucusing together, who are writing editorials to the local paper together, who are introducing legislation together, and so on. 
And so this strategy is proceeding apace. And I think we have a lot to look forward to. And I do think that that has heartened and moralized uh, a, a lot of people who've been demoralized uh, on the left. So it's a mixed bag. Um, that's, I just wanted to lay that out as a sort of backdrop for uh, where the left is at. Now let's talk a little bit about where the entire country is at. Uh, as of this morning, when I was walking my dog, I looked at my phone and it appears that the major networks are declaring that Joe Biden has defeated Donald Trump. Uh, Trump is, is rejecting this uh, conclusion as we knew that he would. But it was always a matter of whether or not he had the political power to um, supersede the ruling of the major networks, um, the ruling of the courts, uh, which are not actually going in Trump's favor as much as you might have expected with these legal challenges that he's mounting and so on. In fact, I saw a desperate email from uh, Donald Trump to his supporters, sort of shaming his supporters for not getting out on the streets for him. I mean, obviously, the liberal media is focusing on these pockets of uh, right wing supporters who are going to places like in Philadelphia and in Phoenix, you're seeing, you know, right wing rallies. In reality, it's just not enough. The volume is just not high enough to actually override the conclusion of, you know, the New York Times and, um, the, the state the state legislatures and, and, and governors and so on. Um, this was an election that was essentially a referendum on Trump. I think we can all agree on this. It was not really a referendum on Biden. Biden knew this. His strategy was to be as recessive as possible and to be passively absorb support from people who were turned off by Donald Trump for a variety of reasons. I think the most important one being the uh, pandemic both its economic dimensions and its public health dimensions. Um, on a note, a comment on that, um, we're going to find out a lot more in the coming days and weeks about who voted, which way and why, the sort of demographic data that will come to us, which will be very important and interesting to, to dive into. But anecdotally, um, I had done a little bit of research on Arizona seniors, which was a demographic that went really hard for Trump in 2016, and then um, appears to have, if not broken even, then maybe even swung for Biden um, in 2020. Of course, uh, Biden has won Arizona. Um, and it was a split between uh, Arizona seniors who were more concerned with distant Black Lives Matter protests which they believed were devolving into looting, violence, chaos, anarchy, and who wanted a restoration of law and order. There was a quote from a, a woman who lives in uh, Peoria, Arizona, in a retirement home there. Obviously, Peoria is listed as one of the safest cities in America. She's not, not touched by this phenomenon. It's an entirely abstract phenomenon. It's entirely a culture war type of phenomenon. Um, and, and she cited that as her main reason for sticking with Donald Trump, as she had last time. Uh, and then there was another Arizona senior, a, a man who had voted Republican in every single presidential election of his life, who was quoted as saying that he simply couldn't vote for Donald Trump because Donald Trump did not care about the over 65 age group, which was a high risk for uh, COVID-19. And he simply cared more about his own life then about whatever kind of nonsense was being ginned up by the Trump campaign over the summer about distant, you know, democratic run cities smoldering um, in ashes and so on and so forth. So those were the stakes of the election, I think. Um, and that does not mean that Joe Biden was presenting a robust vision of, of how precisely to go about resolving this crisis. Um, in a sense, he made a uh, on the one hand, Biden made ambitious promises for resolving the crisis, which were not specific. 
and then specific promises, which were not ambitious. In fact, I think that's what we can probably expect from the entire Biden administration. It'll be when it's ambitious, it won't be specific. When it's specific, it won't be ambitious. We should probably expect that for the next four to eight years from from Biden. Um, that should be his uh, campaign, his uh, his his slogan. Right now, uh, his unofficial slogan is uh, what he said to a room full of wealthy donors. He promised them nothing will fundamentally change. Uh, but I think that this is a this is a runner up. Um, so that those were the stakes of the election. Uh, the United States has repudiated Trumpism. I would argue not very forcefully. This was a rather close election. Um, I think it's still damning and alarming that there are, you know, um, millions and millions of people who are buying what Donald Trump is selling. And I think that it's a phenomenon that's not going to go away. And it's one that the left needs to figure out how to um, relate to no matter what. And right now, I think American liberals are uh, feeling quite relieved. And I think that the left's responsibility is to sound the alarm immediately that um, the, the, the major problems that working class people in particular face uh, in, in American life and the people of color face and marginalized people of all kinds face in America, they're not going away under under a Biden administration. This is obvious to us. It's obvious to, I think, every single person who's listening to this call, but it's actually not at all obvious to the liberals who are in the streets right now, waving their Biden, Biden and Harris signs as we speak, honking their horns and so on. I don't want to rain on their parade, but we do have to prepare people uh, to, to understand that you can't simply now go back to sleep. You have to, you have to stay awake and you have to stay on guard and you have to stay in the struggle. Um, as I, to go back to what I mentioned at the top of this talk, the American left is in a reasonably good position, I think, to be able to organize ourselves into an opposition formation against a Biden administration. And this is what I would recommend that we do. There are two options available to us right now. We can either attempt to ingratiate ourselves to the Biden-Harris administration and hope that they you know, allow us to um, participate as a sort of junior partners in, in the coalition with them. Or we can understand that Biden's personal history and, of course, the Democratic Party's general history with Republicans um, and with, for example, Mitch McConnell would indicate that if there's going to be any type of coalition government, it will be a Biden-McConnell coalition government, not a Biden-AOC coalition government. It's not happening. Um, and we can try as, as hard as we might, but I think it's a waste of our energies. Uh, I liked the formulation that um, Jacobin contributor Matt Karp used recently on, on, a, on a video for, for Jacobin, where he said, it's time to do outdoor politics, not indoor politics during the Biden administration. That's where our resources should be focused. It's not that we don't think that a Biden administration might be movable. It's that we think that a Biden administration is unlikely to be movable in you know backdoor backroom negotiations with us. Um, those negotiations are probably not even going to transpire, much less be successful. However, uh, a self-interested presidential administration will respond to direct pressure or from an organized uh, working class. Um, so that is our task, as ever, is to organize the multiracial working class. Um, so as for what we can expect from a, from a Biden administration, I just want to remind people that Biden is a proud third-way Democrat who was brought onto the Barack Obama presidential ticket to reassure people that the false image that Barack Obama had cultivated for himself as a, as a progressive change maker um, was actually not going to be too threatening.
to uh, various uh, sectors of capital and elements of the Democratic Party establishment coalition. Um, you know, Obama, Obama had received a lot of praise in, in his career up to running for president for being a centrist, for being someone who was willing to play ball uh, with power brokers and uh, capitalists and, and so on. Um, but when he ran for president, he um, he cultivated quite a different image, which would he would be a transformer. Um, it was, again, not very specific, but but certainly that was popular with voters. It wasn't popular with donors. And it wasn't popular with the Democratic Party old guard. So Biden was brought on to soften that image because that's how conservative Joe Biden is. Uh, Joe Biden has uh, said uh, uh, that he finds class warfare distasteful in more or less his own words. I would allege that that's absolutely a a lie. He finds class warfare um, perfectly tasteful uh, when it's the capitalist class and waging warfare on the working class and has certainly throughout his career been of assistance to the capitalist class in that project. Um, You know, uh, Joe Biden was a champion of Bill Clinton's welfare reform. Joe Biden was an architect of uh, mass incarceration in this country, the 1994 crime bill. Joe Biden voted for NAFTA. Joe Biden voted for the TPP. Joe Biden voted for the repeal of Glass-Steagall. Joe Biden voted for the Iraq war. Joe Biden was a champion of the Iraq war. When Joe Biden was vice president, he was known for uh, outraging other conservative Democrats by walking into negotiations with Mitch McConnell and offering cuts to Social Security and Medicare, which he has repeatedly referred to as sarcastically sacred cows, the pillars of our welfare state uh, that he thinks uh, is not pragmatic to um, protect them, that in fact they should be, as he put it, on the table. So this is what we should expect are his instincts. His instincts will be to govern as an arch neoliberal. However, the political terrain is different than it was in the 1990s when he honed these political instincts. Um, I do think that the left now has opportunities that we didn't have before. We have people that we didn't have before. And there's a certain delegitimization a long-term delegitimization with flashes, as we've noticed, of relegitimization, such as at the present moment, but a long-term delegitimization of American bourgeois democracy, which uh, gives us new opportunities to challenge the status quo. Um, I, 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 I wish that we were gearing up for a Joe Biden presidency and Democratic-controlled two houses of Congress because I think that it would really call the question on the priorities of the Democratic Party. I'm afraid that it's not settled yet, but it looks like it's going to be a Republican-led Senate, um, which is actually bad for the left because it means that Joe Biden will blame everything on a Republican Senate. And of course, the Republicans will, if, if they're in control of the Senate, will be extraordinarily obstructionist. But then, of course, Joe Biden has and his administration have an alibi for not pursuing any kind of progressive reforms. Of course, they're not going to pursue, you know, they're, um, they could uh, issue a lot of progressive executive orders, but we know that they're not going to do that either, right? Um, so it'll be an alibi for inertia. And I think that that'll be something that we need to be prepared to um, help the scales fall away from people's eyes with regard to to that excuse. Um, As for how the left should um, go about doing outdoor politics, I think that the tasks are threefold. Um, The the first task is that we need to um, rebuild the labor movement in this country. So 
uh, luckily, a Joe Biden administration, I mean, I've, I've just explained why I think that it will be a total train wreck and disaster, but it's also true that it will be an improvement over the Trump administration in some key ways, one of which will be that probably Joe Biden will appoint people to the National Labor Relations Board who are at least nominally interested in fair union elections because the Democrats have a vested interest in appearing basically pro-union, unlike the Trump administration. Um and that will make it a little easier to organize in the labor movement, hopefully. Um, and it's critical that we take advantage of those political openings, no matter how small they are, because 10% union density in this country, we're not going to be able to do pretty much anything else that we want to do unless we get that number up and unless we make unions more militant and more radical. So that's task number one. Task number two is to build socialist organizations, socialist membership organizations. Um, they can take all forms. I'm a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. Um, Cooperation Jackson, obviously, is another example. I think that um, it's really critical that we continue to build these kinds of institutions that can serve as the vehicles for getting us toward the ideal type of institution, which is an actual large mass united militant workers party um, that we can use to um, do some real damage to the capitalist class in this country. And thirdly, we need to be, continue building our electoral bench. Um, I think that we should do it in a particular way. The, the, the Democratic Socialists of America passed a resolution last year at the national convention calling for class struggle elections, which is a particular orientation toward electoral politics, which is to see candidacies and, um, and you know, uh, office, when people are holding office, to see this as uh, a means of organizing the working class, not merely, you know, acting independently on behalf of the working class. Um, it's difficult to do, but I think what I mentioned before, which is trying to elect people in batches, is actually a good start. Because when you send people, individual elected officials, into government alone, and you don't have a relationship of discipline with them, which is hard to pull off um, for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, there's two things that are going to happen. One, their arm's going to be twisted by the Democratic Party establishment. And, and, and second, they're going to uh, realize that those people, despite having odious political commitments, are actually like the nice enough. I mean, they're their colleagues, you know, they get coffee with them on breaks and they, they're not, you know, monsters individually. And it, that has a, a corrosive effect on the political commitments of our people. So electing them in groups, I think is, is a really good strategy. And just remembering that, when they're campaigning and when they're in office, their chief task is to be organizers of the working class. Um, here's a here's a good illustration, and this is the last thing I'll say. Um, in Brazil, um, there is a formation called PSOL, socialist formation in the government, and some some um, representatives of PSOL came and spoke to us. Uh, members of DSA and told us about uh, an event where. Um, one of the one of the representatives in government, there was a mass protest and she had already been represented to government and um, there was a protest happening outside and she simply had the keys. She had literally had the keys to the government building. She simply unlocked it and held the door open while people streamed in to occupy the building. I think this is obviously a, a, the, as an act, it's quite inspiring, but also as a metaphor for what precisely the purpose of a class struggle elected official is, is to unlock the door and hold it open so that the people can occupy the halls of power, um, metaphorically speaking as well. So um, 
So it's critical that we continue to push on the electoral front, but that we understand that we need to do politics in a different way than um, than is typically done in the United States. Um, and I think that we have um, I think we have good prospects. I think that um, politics is essentially using what you have to get what you want. And I think that what we have is a lot better than it was five or 10 years ago. So I'm feeling I'm feeling hopeful, though I also feel wary of a potential Biden administration and its ability to hypnotize people or lull people back to sleep. And I'll stop there, but I'm excited to hear what uh, Peter and Kali have to say and what you guys have to say. So feel free to ask questions. Thanks very much, Megan. Kali, you ready to pitch in next? All right. Uh, can you hear me? Can everybody hear me? All right. Number one, um, pleasure to be here, um, engaging in this conversation. We're going to need many of these uh, in the days going forward uh, to struggle with ourselves uh, about clarity and, and getting as much clarity as we possibly can. Uh, I think towards moving uh, a program, not just here in the United States, uh, but internationally as well, which I think is definitely going to be needed. Um, now, that's it. I wanted to uh, step back just a, a little bit um, to try to provide a, a more kind of a short take because we, we don't have as, as, you know, days and days on end uh, to talk about the overall capitalist world system. But I think it's important in this context to 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 take a, a larger perspective of where we are at. Um, and one of the things I consistently and, and um, see us missing is putting the U.S. elections in a global context uh, and to put the trends of what we're seeing in the global context. Uh, and in not doing that, I don't think we're providing enough analysis around the deep crisis of, of the capitalist system itself. Uh, and how that is playing out uh, within all of uh, the politics within the various nation state projects that exist. Um, and because we are not doing that, I think, deeply enough, we're not necessarily, uh, I think, making the connection as to why we're seeing a Duterte, why we're seeing a Modi, why we're seeing the Erdogan, why we're seeing, you know, uh, um, Bolsonaro's, why we're seeing Boris Yeltsin's, why we're seeing all of these different forces, um, because we know that these are not, they're not manifestations of, you know, individual crisis. They're manifestations of a deeper structural crisis within the system itself. Uh, and then if you uh, really kind of narrow on out um, and and look at the, the kind of actual political project of uh, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, and you see its own uh, kind of nationalist interests being brought to the fray and its own uh, kind of rightward drift and its own use of nationalism, which mirrors very much of what we see like in uh, other places like in Hungary or uh, other places, you know, throughout the globe. And so there's a deeper uh, crisis afoot which is causing the, the deeper kind of crisis within bourgeois democracy and the deep fractures within civil society that we are seeing everywhere. Um, you know, the, 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 it's been clear, I think, for the past two days, kind of coming back to the United States, it's been clear the past two days uh, that Biden was going to win the Electoral College. 
Um, but uh, that there were critical gains by the right in the House, you know, that's going to break basically the, the kind of um, foolproof uh, ability to kind of marshal through some politics that Nancy Pelosi at least been blessed with the last two years. Um, and that more than likely, that's it's still somewhat in contest because of Georgia and what's happening there right now. But more than likely, the Republicans are going to hold, uh, keep keep control of of the Senate. Now, in this context, while everybody, you know, a certain set of liberal forces are out marching on the street and and you know feel proud about the referendum, two things need to be noted. Number one, more than half the people in the United States, at least those who voted. Let me let me make this be clear about that. Uh, nearly half of the folks who voted voted for Donald Trump. That is not going away. Those forces are not going to way, going away. Um, and in the, the kind of balance of power in the, in the concrete that exists, the strongest player on the board is, in fact, Mitch McConnell. And he is going to be dictating, at least for the next two years, uh, how this game is played, uh, which Megan somewhat alluded to. But uh, um, I want to speak... Uh, because I am not as uh, um, hopeful about some of the possibilities that we are confronting unless we discard certain illusions um, about where we are and and I think what kind of needs to get done. Um, because there's a deep focus um, on both the presidency and then the 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 Senate and Congress. And less of a focus, I think, at least in the U.S. part, on what is happening actually in the states. And where the right has far out-organized us, you know, to be able to get to the point they're still at that verge, and not quite there yet, but they're still at the verge of being able to call a constitutional convention by their control of the state legislatures and the state governorships. Uh, Mitch McConnell and his crew did a masterful job of setting up, you know, uh, ways to continue minority governance uh, through the control of the courts, particularly the Supreme Court, but all the legis- you know, all the the federal judgeships and, and minor judgeships that they orchestrated in the last really six years, six to eight years, uh, when they started blocking Obama's appointments and then setting up their own in record pace uh, during the the uh, Trump administration, um, and I think. I'm I'm going on and on, Mitch, because I want to outline and just put forward that um, their forces are far more consolidated, and we have to deal with that reality uh, than anything that 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 can be mirrored of the the kind of loose coalition of liberals, progressives, uh, and leftists. Um, and I think Mitch and and his forces' strategy uh, is very much contingent on being able to play a long game because they're very clear about what their long game is uh, in a way that that combination of forces of, of liberals, progressives, and the left, just we need to be honest with ourselves, is not. Not in the United States, not at this particular point in time. Uh, and with that kind of clarity, uh, you, can, you see a level of Mitch being able and other Republican forces being able to back off of Trump, you know, at least in the here and now, 
uh, because they have other means to execute their program that he aided and abetted. But we need to clearly understand there was an overemphasis on Trump and not an emphasis on what their concrete actual agenda was. Because in truth, uh, where Trump probably did his greatest kind of individual mastery work was pulling the, the different threads of the right together, right? Who, who normally, at least over the last you know, couple of decades, wouldn't align with each other, or wouldn't kind of connect with each other. He has built a new coalition of the right. And if you want to understand just the basics outlined, this is just shorthand. But he's been able to, say, get the QAnon forces together with Mitch McConnell and his forces together, who just four years ago likely would not have been in the room with each other or, or would have seen eye to eye. Now uh, they are firmly together. Um, they, they still got some tweaking, some things to do and some things to work out amongst themselves, particularly, you know, who's going to drive the agenda and to what extent uh, will the, their street force and, and the militias and things of that nature, uh, can they be controlled and contained uh, and corralled? That still is going to play it, I think, for the next couple of months and maybe even some years. Uh, but he's put them together into a, a, a fairly coherent uh, uh, program uh, and was able to do turnout uh, on the second in the process leading up to it uh, if we want to stand back and look and be critically analyzed, a level of turnout that the, no Republican has seen since the days of Ronald Reagan. We are going to have to deeply contend with that. And I can tell you, at least from the vantage point of where I sit in Mississippi, um, you know, uh, they are going to be a force to contend with and are not going to surrender one inch or one, you know, uh, uh, one iota uh, of, of ground uh, to any liberal force, let alone uh, uh, Biden and his administration. Um, and they have both the political means to do so, but they also have the extrajudicial means to do so. The forces outside that have been organized now all throughout this country uh, to be able to apply a level of pressure that we at least in the short term or not. And we think, I think we need to come to grips, you know, with that very quickly, very soundly and try to figure out, you know, what level of organization outside of the electoral apparatus is going to be needed in many communities to be able to mount a level of self-defense, which is going to be real. We're already seeing that in a number of Southern communities. I, that's what I can speak best to just given my knowledge and connections, but I'm sure that's taking place in, in critical areas in, uh, from what we've seen of late in Wisconsin and the, the Pacific Northwest, et cetera. Um, but going back to why we need to, to really look at uh, kind of what's happening on the state, I just want everybody who's listening to this to go do a critical analysis of how politics are playing out on the state level inside of Pennsylvania. So while as it's kind of turning out, you know, just given the nature of the count, et cetera, and how this piece has played out, you know, Pennsylvania looks like it was the savior, or at least one of the saviors of the day uh, uh, for Biden. On the state level, the right made critical gains in Pennsylvania in the midst of Pennsylvania flipping for uh, 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 for Biden in this particular round. But inside the state level, they gained some critical momentum. And we need to seriously look at that and analyze that. And I think that's going that's taking place in a number of different states throughout the country. Um, so, you know, this right wing program and objective is going to move forward. 
and how we contend with that, uh, I think, is going to be uh, very critical. Now, just in the interest of time, coming back to kind of a look, looking at what the next four years might look look like. I think the Biden's four years are going to fundamentally look like Obama's last four years because of Mitch McConnell, which Megan, I think, somewhat alluded to. Um, I think, you know, uh, uh, slightly different from Megan, I think, you know, uh, the neoliberals actually prefer a uh, Republican-controlled Senate because it gives them cover to not have to deal with any pressure from progressive forces in the left, which you spoke to. But I think it's not just like that they they prefer it that way, in part because it enables the empire to maintain uh, a bipartisan kind of order of operation. And the key thing, as Biden said, like, we're not going to fundamentally change anything. So if anything, we're just going back to where we were in 2012, 2008. Um, and there's a critical danger, I think, speaking to the left that we have to recognize, I wholeheartedly agree that that uh, the focus of this next four years is definitely going to have to be outside uh, of that apparatus and, and arena. That was, of course, my argument for the last 40, 50 years anyway. But in this particular uh, uh, period and phase, I think us gearing up for that and how we do that uh, is the critical piece that we're going to have to come to to grips with. Um, now I think some of the, the initial pieces that we are going to have to figure out how to construct to move some things forward. And I'll put it in some organizational forms and, and, and state it most clearly. And I'm not a, a, a member of either one of these, but just based on where we are best organized in the here and now. We need to have more substantive conversations and programmatic development between uh, forces like the Movement for Black Lives and DSA. Like there needs to be real, concrete, tangible conversations around how do you build a program in the here and now that we can execute in the course of this next four years. And then on that basis, I think we need to then figure out how do we do a, a, a real deep combination of both revitalizing uh, the community-based organized movement, but also the labor movement. Give me a minute, T. Um, I'm, I'm in the middle of something right now. <laughs> um, just take the book, my uh, T. Okay? Thank you. Um, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Oh, yeah, take your lightsaber back. Sorry about that. Um, um, I think that is a uh, this kind of forging this level of critical dialogue in the course of the next year is a is a fundamental piece that has to happen in the mix of continuing our, our, our organized work. But some very deliberate and intentional conversations have to happen there about how do we actually build a program? And we need to keep this in mind. I'm going to go back to the global level. Um, we need to keep this in mind, learning the hard lessons of the failures to this point of the new left projects in Greece, in Spain, you know, uh, uh, in Italy, in, uh, in other places in particular where on the heels of the crisis of 2008, 
you know, new experiments in trying to build kind of mass-based left-oriented parties that came from the social movements explicitly. There were a lot of lessons, both good and bad, that were learned there. But to the to what we've we've learned is how they've petered out and how they basically, I would argue to a certain extent, those those projects have uh, fallen way short of fulfilling their potential because they fundamentally, I would argue, abandoned the principle of being on the outside, being where their greatest strength and leverage was, and did more towards orienting themselves on how to attain power within the bourgeois framework, which is not where our ultimate power rests at this day and age, you know, as a somewhat, you know, deeply divided uh, uh, working class uh, uh, force. We have to build that kind of muscle, the strength and political clarity outside of the apparatus to build a new vision of what society is going to be and then figure out how do we use the tools of, of electoral politics to kind of move some of what we want, but ultimately understanding that for us to get to where we need to be, particularly given the mounting ecological crisis that we're confronting, we're going to have to do more to seize in the here and now the actual productive and reproductive process of society and put it in our hands in a way that that exceeds the the, the capture of the state as it was envisioned in most of the 20th century. So. Um, a lot to say about that, a lot to argue about that. Uh, but in the interest of time, uh, I'm going to stop there because I, I want to get more into the actual discussion, dialogue, and debate. Thanks very much, Cody. Um, and now, Peter Drucker. Peter, you're. I can't hear you, Peter. You're muted. You need to unmute yourself. Yeah. Okay, hear me now? Yes, but we can't see your face. We can see some strange table objects. Uh, but the, the screen seems to have reversed. I have no idea how that happened. Um, what can I do? Okay, so starting again, thank you, Sebastian. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Kali. Uh, we agree on uh, some very practical things, like it looks like Joe Biden is going to be inaugurated president on January 20th. Um, and one other thing, it was a near thing. Uh, we haven't talked so far, particularly about the different scenarios that were floating around about what could happen with this election. One of the scenarios, I'm sure we all remember, was a contested election with big battles in the institutions and on the streets before the smoke cleared and there was a new president. And I think a lot of people now are just ready to forget that and say, okay, that was fantasy. I don't think that was so purely imaginary. I think we came close to that. And I think it was less purely imaginary than the fantasy, the scenario that there was going to be a Biden landslide. I think that was never probable. Um, what we're seeing instead is the main lesson of this election is the enduring strength of the far right. And in this sense, I'm more in tune, I'm more on the same wave, wavelength with, with Kali's pessimism than I am, I think, with Megan's hopes. There's a, there's a rage out there in US society. 
And it's a rage that has something to do with 40 years of neoliberal austerity, growing inequality, stagnant wages, all those things. But the far right has managed to capture a lot of it. And the left has been a relative failure at capturing much of it. And that's the reality we're, we're dealing with now. And that's what this election confirmed. And I think a lot of Marxists, frankly, have been lagging behind in understanding this reality. It has to do partly with not being, not having our fingers on the pulse of the United States and its people, but it also has to do with misunderstandings, a simplistic way of looking at the capitalist class and a simplistic way of looking at the capitalist state. Um, I think partly a lot of Marxists are still living partly in their minds in the period that um, economist Danny Roderick referred to as hyperglobalization. It's the period really that was fairly brief between 1995 and 2008, where big multinational capital was calling all the shots across the world. Well, that's not reality anymore. Um, and it's specifically not the reality of the capitalist state in country after country. You know, Kali talked about this on an international scale. Modi, Erdogan, Orban, you could certainly add in Boris Johnson. This is a big international trend. And in all these places, big capital is not calling the shots. And this is in tune with a sophisticated Marxist understanding of the capitalist state. In the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels talked about the state as the executive committee for managing the common affairs of the bourgeoisie. And you can underline the word committee there. We're talking about something diverse and plural with shifting relationship of forces. Nikos Polantzis captured that when he talked about the power block and shifting relations between um, different capitalist class fractions and other allied fractions in the state. Um, and those relations in the power block have shifted away from big multinational capital. Otherwise, you would never have had Brexit and you would never have had Trump, frankly. So we have to come to terms with that. Um, so there's an international reality to this. Um, and there's a specific reality of this in the United States. And that has to do with the specific character of the specific state that exists in the United States. Um, it's a very unusual state. Not only is it a very imperfect and strange bourgeois democracy, as the whole world has understood election after election where you get three million vote majorities, four million vote majorities for a Democratic candidate, and still a Republican winning or coming really close to winning. So that's peculiar for a capitalist democracy. Um, but also the United States, it's important to understand, is a, a very profoundly racist state in a very specific way. And that has to do with the fact that it still has a constitution, the oldest written constitution of any capitalist state, but a constitution that was not written by the bourgeoisie, but was written largely by slave owners. And the state is still marked by that fact. Um, so what you have is what Marxist historian David Rudiger has referred to as Herrenvoke Republicanism. That is to say, a republic by and for the so-called white master race. That was the reality under this same constitution 
for 75 years with slavery, for 90 years with Jim Crow, and in different forms today, it is still the reality. Donald Trump was an expression of this hair invoke republicanism, symbolized from the start of his political career by the insistence that Barack Obama could not possibly be a legitimate president could not even be a, a genuine citizen of this polity. That was Donald Trump's starting point. You can't understand that without understanding the fundamental racist character of the society. And frankly, in a different way, Joe Biden is also an expression of heron folk republicanism. Um, yeah, Megan already said he was one of the main architects of mass incarceration. And the form here in Vogue Republicanism takes in the United States today is mass disenfranchisement through mass incarceration. That's how it works. No other country in the world locks up the number of people, and this is overwhelmingly black and other racialized people, that the United States does. And that's how the state functions. Um, this is not something, obviously, that's going to change with Joe Biden's election. And not in any fundamental way. And if you um, look at the Black Lives Matter movements, which was, you know, if there was a moment of hope for the left in the United States over this past year, it wasn't the election. It was during the summer when you had these massive mobilizations around Black Lives Matter and a massive shift, even in white public opinion to some extent, for a, for a time around those mobilizations. So that's the real mass party of the left, if you ask me, in the United States at this point, is the movement for black lives and the broader Black Lives Matter constellation. And Joe Biden is its opponent, clearly, not only as the architect of mass incarceration, but also as the open, explicit opponent of defunding the police, which is the key demand of the whole movement as everybody who mobilized this part of it understands. Um, just want to add to this uh, how um, gender and sexuality relate to all this, to this dynamic of class and race. Obviously, the gender gap is an abiding part of U.S. politics, but sexuality is too, and viewed in in an intersectional way with class and race. Now, Megan said, we're gonna see a lot of analysis of how the votes fell in this election. A lot of constituencies shifted towards Trump in this election, even though he lost. Okay, the young shifted away from Trump, perhaps the old shifted away from Trump. Educated suburban voters shifted away from Trump, even though they very largely voted for Republicans even as they voted for Biden, those same educated suburban voters. Um, but uh, black women shifted towards Trump, got 4% in 2016, 8% in 2020. Black and Latino people generally shifted a bit towards Trump. Gay men shifted towards Trump. 14% of, of gay men, according to one exit poll, voted for Trump in 2016. 28%, twice as many, voted for Trump this time around. Um, and this goes together with the fact that in the Black Lives Matter movement, we saw a massive and unprecedented alliance and mobilization together with queer and trans people. 
you saw the mobilization of 15,000 people for black and queer trans lives in Brooklyn this summer. Never seen anything like that. So you got both a movement of gay men towards Trump and a movement of queer people towards fundamental radical rebellion at the same time. So we're seeing deep divides and they're cross-cut essentially by race and class here. And in conclusion, I just like to end by talking a little bit about the Democratic Party. And I think, you know, the three of us on this panel, we have no illusions in Joe Biden. We have no illusions about the Democratic Party. We understand it's a capitalist party that cannot be captured from the left by the left. That's clear. But Megan and I at least definitely have some disagreements about tactics in relation to the Democratic Party. Um, this may surprise you. Um, Megan and her co-thinkers in the DSA have talked a lot about a dirty break with the Democratic Party. And actually, I'd be fine with a dirty break with the Democratic Party. Now, I've, I argued for that back in the 1980s with Jesse Jackson. I would have been happy if Jesse Jackson, after the primaries, had broken with the Democratic Party. But a dirty break has to be a break. It can't be some long-term prospect, um, you know, in some distant consolatory future. It has to be a break much sooner because the fact that the movement for black lives today, as the mass party of the left in the United States, has no effective political representation, that's not a problem for the future. That's a problem now. And if the left can't respond to that problem now, the left has a big problem. The whole country has a big problem. And sorry, Megan, but I don't think running socialists on Democratic Party tickets is helping to address that problem in any adequate way. I don't know much, I have to confess, about the DSA members on the Chicago City Council or in the New York State Legislature, but I have followed AOC and Ilhan Omar, um, and you know they say all sorts of great things and lay out some great positions, but they are mounting zero challenge to the Democratic Party as a capitalist institution. Within weeks of their getting elected in 2018, they made a deal with Nancy Pelosi, whose speaker, speakerhood was in danger at that point in the House of Representatives, to get her back in the saddle as Speaker of the House of Representatives in return for a few committee assignments. And they have not done anything since then to, to disrupt that cozy relationship. There are opportunities for breaking with the Democratic Party establishment and the Democratic Party leadership every week. Department of Homeland Security funding, you name it, every week there are reasons to break with the Democratic Party in the halls of Congress. And they are not, they're complaining, but they're not doing it. And the, the party we want is not going to emerge in this process. This dirty break is going to is going to remain on the distant horizon as something that never actually happens. Um, and you know, uh, Megan and Colleen didn't say how they voted. I voted for Howie Hawkins uh, in New York State, safe Biden state, I confess. But I voted for him because I wanted to do something this year. 
um, with no illusions about the Greens. Absolutely no illusion. It has no roots in the movement for black lives. Um, it is nothing to do with the Workers' Party we all know we need. But it self-defines as an anti-capitalist party. It was led by a socialist running an open anti-capitalist campaign and voting for the Greens where it was possible was a way of saying, I'm not going to get carried away with Biden as the answer to Trump. And I think the left should have done that a hell of a lot more. I think one of the ways that this election was a big setback for the left was in the way the Greens were reduced to a, to a fraction of what they've gotten in the past with a, about a quarter of a percent of a vote. That's a sad showing. And it's something to do with the attitude of the broader left. And that, I think, is a problem that the U.S. left is going to have to tackle if it's to escape from what I'm afraid. I have to say, so, sorry, Megan, for all your hopes. But I think um, the left is in something of a dead end at this point. And a lot of things, of course, it has to be challenged mainly on the streets, mainly in the workplaces, mainly outside the institutions. Um, but that has to find a political expression, too, and an independent alternative left political expression. And I'll stop there. Great. Thanks, Peter. Um, do Kari uh, or Megan want to make a brief response before we take some questions? Yeah, I'll respond to that. So um, not sure where to begin, but since a lot of the, your comment, Peter, was addressed to me, I'll say that over 9,000 people have joined DSA in the last month. So when we're talking about a dead end, I think we should ask what has happened with the clean, clean break strategy leading up to the present moment. And the answer is very little, actually. I think we need to learn lessons from our recent history electorally. And I think that if we study the history of the attempts to make a clean break with the Democratic Party while still doing electoral politics in the last several decades, we find objectively that they have been less successful than the strategy of running Bernie Sanders for president as an open democratic socialist on the Democratic Party ballot line, AOC and the several other members of the squad running as open democratic socialists while also running on the Democratic Party ballot line, being members of the Democratic Party and playing ball with the Democrats, which a lot of us find occasion to critique on a regular basis, which is the purpose of a group like DSA to comment on scenarios like that. And these, these, these elected officials, for the record, the ones that we have in Congress are not particularly disciplined to DSA, but it's a good start. They're members of DSA. They promote DSA. People come into DSA. And I think that it's been much more successful than the attempts to run, you know, uh, green party candidates than, um, attempts to, um, you know, create sort of proto-party formations in the form of relatively small sectarian socialist groups, the names of which most, the vast majority of people in the United States do not know. And so we have to really be thinking about mass politics. And I think it's really critical that we think about mass politics here. The idea of a dirty break is that uh, we have to, again, like I said, the definition of politics is using what you have to get what you want. It's not simply declaring that you now already have the resources at your disposal to simply have what you want. Um, and so we have to say, look, we have 
a situation in the United States where we have two parties of capital, which, like I said earlier, split the allegiances of the capitalist class and the working class. They have also set up very rigid rules for third parties that are very prohibitive. And it's actually unusual in a global context. So we have to be very attentive to our own domestic context, and we have to navigate around it in a way that makes sense and that reaches millions of people because we have to do mass politics. And so, right, given the, given the objective situation that we find ourselves in, we're going to have to run people where it makes sense on the Democratic Party ballot line while also taking the occasion to promote our politics, drive people into socialist organizations, raise the expectations of the working class, promote a short and medium term program for our politics, create scenarios in which socialists can distinguish themselves from progressives and socialists and progressives can distinguish themselves from liberals. And honestly, it's kind of working. Like it's working pretty well. It's working better than running people as, you know, Green Party candidates. It's working better than all kinds of attempts at a clean clean break over the last several decades. And I would say that the burden of proof is on anybody advocating for a clean break to demonstrate why that has been more successful for the last several decades than the current dirty, dirty break strategy being pursued by groups like the DSA. Now, there are dangers in the dirty break strategy. There's no question, and you will find complete agreement with me on what those dangers are. I just think that those dangers are actually significantly smaller than the danger of remaining sectarian and walled off from mass politics by being either entirely abstentionist about electoral politics or by choosing to engage in electoral politics in a way that is essentially an expression of protest and not an attempt to reach mass numbers of people by speaking to issues that genuinely connect to their objective material conditions on as large of a platform as possible and using electoral politics as a bully pulpit to actually talk to people where they're paying attention to politics. So it has to be done in conjunction with extra parliamentary work. There will, again, you will find no disagreement from me on this. I just firmly believe that actually the strategy that is currently being pursued right now is superior to the strategy that has been pursued over the last several decades. Will it reach uh, a dead end? Perhaps. But I think that we've already seen that the clean break, clean, clean break strategy in the American two-party capitalist system has reached dead end after dead end. And I also think that we've uh, managed to antagonize people like Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic Party establishment enough that while I, don't th- I personally don't think that the members of the squad have behaved in precisely the way that I would like for them to and that most members of DSA would like for them to 100% of the time, that people like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer would be extraordinarily relieved if the um, members of their party, now of course the Democratic Party doesn't have a bounded constituency like other parties in other areas of the world, um, were to simply take their ball and go home right now. They would essentially be grateful that we had self-marginalized and that we were no longer a thorn in their side and could simply be dismissed. We could also be you know, accused of, um, of us being just simply spoilers and written off that way. I mean, I think that a, an actual objective analysis of our available options indicates that while there are dangers to the option re- that we're pursuing right now, it is superior to all of the other ones. I think it's delusional, actually, to say that we can simply break right now and expect millions of people to follow us where we're headed. We don't have that kind of buy-in from millions of people that we need in order to successfully break without self-immolating. So no, it's not going to be easy. And there are plenty of obstacles and there are plenty of opportunities for us to go up in flames. Um, But the alternatives need to be spoken for. They need to be gamed out. And there needs to be an explanation for why the alternatives are superior in light of the recent decades of history of attempting those same alternatives. Thanks, Megan. Kali, um, I have a bunch of questions. Do you want to uh, 
wait for those, or do you want to intervene immediately? Well, intervene. Um, (coughs) The conversation is one that speaks to the fragmentation of the left in the United States. Um, Being part very explicitly of a strategy for most of the last, say, 15 years, which mirrors more in its own manner, uh, more of the dirty break type of orientation. Um, To interject in this debate, it has utterly failed, right? So I'd I'd have to disagree, Megan, when you said it's proven to be superior. Uh, What we have done in Jackson uh, with the the trying to build on a municipal level, with a lot of a lot of debates, a lot of splits within those forces, you know, over the years, uh, but the dominant trend was was always kind of leaning towards kind of a, a dirty break orientation. Let's call it that. Uh, and what we have seen in the practical is the ability for uh, uh, for us to put people in office who utterly and completely betray the interests of the working class consistently. Um, and and then leave the organized uh, basis of of the four forces you know that were uh, supposed to come together and and build together towards uh, building a mass apparatus, building and engaging in a mass politics, divided, fractured at each other's throats. Uh, this is the real uh, kind of calamity and and. Uh, what we've seen consistently, I'd have to agree with Peter, uh, in, in our work, in our experience, uh, is that it moves folks inevitably, solidly within the orbit of the, of the Democratic Party, not ever leaning towards a, a, a break. And when I was speaking towards earlier, towards looking at the fractures, a deeper analysis of what happened with the Rainbow Coalition, a deeper analysis of what happened with the National Black Independent Political Parties and efforts on behalf of black folks in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, Chicanos in the 60s, 70s, 80s to build uh, independent parties to represent the interests and how those consistently, time and time again, got captured by the Democrats because we did not have either the political unity or the political clarity about where we wanted to go and consistently, time and time again, fell prey, fell victim to popular front orientations and strategies which ultimately called for cross-class collaboration in a manner which subject the working class to the interests of the petty bourgeoisie and to the bourgeois forces. That is what adds play and what the, the dirty strategy ultimately, I would argue, Megan, does not take into account, right? And we have to, 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 to deal with that. And then this notion that with, within the framework of a dirty break that we are putting forth clear kind of uh, a working class politics or radical politics. I have never seen that in play anywhere, anytime, any place. Uh, um, uh, and I was, you know, one of, a key architect, uh, at least in, within this experiment, uh, of trying to say that if we're going to do this, uh, we need to do it in a fashion where we are clearly representing and presenting our own politics. And that has been obstructed at every point in the road, by every political experiment I have been involved in the last 30 years of my life consistently, where in order people feel to engage in mass politics, you ultimately water everything down, which does not create the clear distinctions that that 
we need to be providing to the working class as to who is speaking in their interest or at least trying to organize and represent their interests and then build people into uh, uh, organized forces that represent that fight in the long term. The deep fear that we have of being alone, I would, would argue in the end, makes us actually more alone or makes us subject and an appendage to other people's politics, uh, other class forces and alliances politics uh, than our own. Uh, so the, I'm, I'm, there's a lot more to say. Uh, um, I would I would agree with you that we have utterly failed also at the open break strategy. All right. So if neither one of these work, what the hell do we do? That's a deeper question that I was saying that we need to, I think, explore. But a, a big part of it, I think, is um, there are certain illusions. I think we need to to really divest ourselves from going back to the original thing, the crisis in bourgeois politics. Right. Right. But we have a deep crisis among ourselves as to the extent to which we believe within the left time and time again that we can resolve the fundamental issues through a gradual process of engagement with, with, with bourgeois politics. Right. And all the different variances of, of things that come with that. And at some point, we in our own minds and in our own organizing uh, work are going to have to break with many of these illusions. Uh, and I think one some of the key parts is this, this notion like a triage politics, this notion of, of fighting for democratic uh, uh, space within these, these pieces, and then the various uh, iterations and forms of, you know, trying to uphold a, a, a elements of uh, reforming capitalism or democratic capitalism. How we begin to, to dialogue and build with each other uh, to kind of divest ourselves from those particular illusions and the things that come with us, which tether us to different types of uh, uh, other class formations and class interests outside of our own and not build a real mass politics rooted in, in uh, the working class and oppressed communities is something we're going to have to figure out. I'm here to say to think that we have this, this figured out would be a lie to ourselves. It is, right? But how do we engage in more debates like this so that we can start figuring out is a critical piece. I'm going to go back to why I was saying like, you know, M4BL, DSA, et cetera. I don't agree with neither one of those, you know, on a lot, number of different points. But if we're not in dialogue, we're not going to figure a damn thing out. OK, thanks a lot. OK, I'm going to take uh, some questions now and I'm going to read them out. Um, it's a question from Samuel Albert. Would the panelists please comment on the following argument? Trump is not quitting. The fascist forces under his command in the government and in the streets are not quitting. Turn that into a question if you can. Uh, then we have Abdullah Laraj. Uh, how do we improve job market and labor conditions in a global market context and stay competitive? Otherwise, China and low cost producers will win. Uh, Camilla Royal, I'd like the speakers to discuss more about the Green New Deal and whether it's still a popular demand now after the end of the Bernie campaign and whether it's something the left should still focus on. Uh, Laura Miles asks, what do the speakers think is necessary to prevent any coalition of resistance, quote unquote, from being pulled behind the Democratic Party? And Paul asks, 
the new party fusion didn't work. What can we do to make sure the Social Democrats and the left can get better people in? How to get us all on the same page to protect the most vulnerable? Who would like to respond first to any of those? That's a wide-ranging assortment of questions, <laughs> Sebastian. So, so respond that, to the ones you want. Respond to the ones you want. I'll, I'll take a stab at a couple of them, and then and then maybe that'll kick off the conversation um, very very briefly. Um, the first question about um, the argument about Trump is not quitting, and the forces the forces that he's mobilized to the street are not quitting. Um, okay, so I think that Trump may not personally want to quit, but I actually think that he does not have the power. <laughs> I think what I was saying at, at the beginning about the, um, the, this actually relates to the whole dirty break debate. I, I think that long-term, like I said, the institutions of bourgeois capitalist politics in the United States and the global capitalist developed countries are are not secure. They actually are experiencing a crisis of legitimacy. I think really especially intensified starting with the 2008 global financial crisis, but that they are durable enough in the short term that if Trump stamps his feet at his golf course, he doesn't actually have the ability to supersede the judgments that are coming down through a variety of I mean, through the courts and through the press and and so on that are basically creating a wall that he can't scale. Sorry to mix my metaphors. Um, I don't. I don't think he has the ability right now to actually um, to overcome the determ- the determination that came down at, like really just minutes before, like an hour before we started this panel, um, that he's a loser. Um, and and I don't know if I did. I mention this already. Uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned this when we were discussing amongst ourselves earlier. If I already mentioned this on a panel, but I I, I saw an email from Trump to his supporters. Um, Kind of sort of chiding or shaming them for not being among the people in the street. It was like, there are patriots out in the street right now. Where are you? It seemed a bit desperate to me. It seemed like an, an, an tacit admission that the level of mass power that is necessary to actually override the legitimacy, the remaining legitimacy of the bourgeois institutions in our society is not actually there. Um, I, I just don't think it's there. Now, there's a second part to this argument, which I think is legitimate, which is, and, and correct, which is that the forces that have mobilized are not quitting. Um, eventually, they're going to peter out on this particular fight. I mean, nobody likes nobody, and we know this on the left very well. You lose steam if you bang, you bang your head against a wall and you realize that you're not, there's not actually an opening for you and for your politics to win. You lose steam, you go home. Um, you have to feel like you can that there's some sort of path to victory in order to keep you out on the streets. Um, I don't, I think that they'll go home temporarily once they realize that that's not the case. They'll, they'll sort of throw their tantrum and then they'll go home. They're not going to stop being uh, agents of reaction in our society. And I'm quite concerned actually about the evolution, the ideological evolution of that section of the right. There are two concerning trends. One is sort of more obviously concerning. The other I think is more um, should be more concerning to the left. The first is um, obviously the QAnon type pizza gate um, reactionary conspiracism, um, which is very over overlaid with um, anti-Semitic and racist tropes, um, and is dangerous. It can it can be dangerous. Um, I think that there's especially in our sort of very bizarre um, and novel. Um, media and social media landscape, it's possible for people to develop 
an attachment to a type of, to a, to a reality that does not square with other people's reality. And they can do it on mass and they can keep the illusion going and, and it can snowball. And I think that's what, what's happening with some sections of the right right now. And I think that we should just be afraid of that on the face of it. And I think a lot of liberals are actually, they understand that this is concerning. Now, the thing that liberals don't, are not concerned about, um, because they're not attuned to the nuances of politics that we are, we are all attuned to is the, um, intelligent absorption of a type of faux populist rhetoric from the Tucker Carlson and Josh Hawley wing of um, the Republican uh, coalition. Um, you even heard Trump say that the Republican Party is the party of the working class. I mean, what a what a joke, what a cruel joke, and one that we should be very concerned about, especially because the Democrats' answer to that is more or less, fine, you can have them. Um, so... Um, you know, I think that Tucker Carlson in particular gives us a window into what this looks like. He essentially emphasizes, he tries to mobilize underdeveloped class rage by talking about elites. And he collapses that all into one category. You've got the corporations and the capitalists, sure, but you've also got people who live in the coasts, um, you know, um, gay and lesbian people um, and transgender people, actually, most of all. Um, you've got, you know, um, people of color in coastal cities. You've got anarchists. You've got all of these are a part of an, an elite blob, people who went to college, college professors. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very income coherent set of politics that collapses um, a working class and poor um, people of color in with white professional managerial class people in with the actual capitalist elite all into one sort of um, elite. And it's quite effective because the major opposition to the right with the largest platform does not have a counter that channels class rage in the same way. It actually just tries to sort of manage expectations and tamp down on, on the class anger. Um, and I think that we should be concerned about that and we should be looking into the future for how to build an alternative that actually um, represents a, a true a true socialist politics, not a socialism of fools. And, and I'll, I'll stop there. There's many, many good questions, but hopefully my other panelists will get to them and then, and then we can have a discussion about that. I'm going to throw in two others. Yeah. I don't want to respond to the ones that I already read out. These may um, inspire you more. One is from Anna Hackman. She says, I think there is a conflation between building DSA and building a movement. Can the panelists expand on why we need to build in solidarity with uh, BLM on the ground? And second question is from Alex de Jong. Uh, obviously, the Democratic Party's capitalist party, but how to explain its proven inability to fight for anything to its right, even when it would be in its interest to do so. I don't know if that, I'll start on that. I don't know if it's the inability as opposed to just an unwillingness. Um, you know, and where the DNC, at least, where its its interests uh, rest in a lie, right? Which is, uh, I think, fundamentally, we have to see that their interests, interests, primary interest is saving the empire more so than than than, than anything uh, else uh, and the the kind of tempering of expectations that Megan mentioned is is just uh, a critical part of the function and operation uh, but what they have been successfully able to do you know over the course of the last 40 years in particular is is be a part of the 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 project of moving the United States further and further to the right I mean you know in, in a lot of fundamental ways, you know, uh, Barack Obama was to the right of Ronald Reagan. But 
you know, where the needle had shifted, uh, um, you know, you, you put him, you know, next to a, a bush and he, he looked at, you know, a, a little rosy. And that's the same thing uh, we have on offer now with uh, Biden and the contrast between between Trump. But I think like Megan laid out from the beginning, um, you know, objectively who and and where Biden is, positions that, you know, 20, 30 years ago would have been unspeakable uh, to, to try to have any of the core elements of the Democratic Party try to uphold. Uh, but yet and still, you wind up seeing the, the Congressional Black Caucus take the lead in solidifying Biden's defeat against uh, Bernie Sanders, you know, which is a, a question because people are talking about doing an analysis of of uh, how the the you know what the actual vote tallies come in. We need to go back a little bit further into an analysis of you know the nature of the coalition that that put Biden there in the first place to be able to execute this program, um, uh, and to, and to do so in, in regards to how he envisioned govern governing uh, going forward, and what elements of the coalition and the coalition base. Uh, does he in the DNC as being worthy of any form of, of attention? Now, uh, I would say, you know, quite honestly, uh, that he already indicated in his speech yesterday, uh, he threw a few bones to progressives and the left, you know, when he talked about uh, the Green New Deal himself, right? Or yeah, he didn't mention that phrase, of course. But he talked about, you know, dealing with climate change and this being a priority in healthcare and uh, and and racial justice issues or those being a priorities, you know, and that that spoke to the the, the green interest that spoke to uh, uh, the movement for Black Lives and that spoke to, uh, um, you know, the the movement around universal healthcare. So he covered those bases to say, I still see you as part of this, but how I'm going to govern is definitely from the right. And you're going to have to temper your expectations in order to meet that. Where some of the key struggles amongst us, we need to be mindful are going to take place. And I'm talking about, you know, the, the progressive forces in general is doing particularly during the course of the first year. We're going to have a lot of folks on the Democratic Party payroll or in their you know extended orbit who are going to be trying to temper down the expectation of the massive force representing working class and, and the oppressed communities on the streets. We're going to hear a lot more arguments about, well, he needs more time or, you know, the, all the different things we heard with Obama the first, you know, uh, uh, two years. You're going to hear that amplified, right, uh, uh, while they're just continuing to make uh, deals with uh, McConnell uh, uh, on every piece within the framework. Um, that is what I think we could expect. But I think we need to have a deeper understanding of what this party is uh, and, and where uh, our alliances go into it, which again comes back to this this piece around how does the left build a political apparatus that speaks to us on interest in the long term that we have to figure out. I squarely have never believed that it it it, it rested in the Democratic Party, um, but there's some critical things clear that we have to figure out. Uh, I do want to go back just real briefly on this piece around Trump uh, and him not leaving. You know, I. Uh, um, I didn't say this so much publicly or, or, or writing, but I thought um, he served his utility to the right when he got the Supreme Court nomination passed through. 
when Omi, when Amy Comey Barrett was passed through, I think at that point in time, there was some clear calculation by, by I'm going to use his name just, just symbolically, among Mitch and some other folks, to say that uh, your ship may be sinking. We don't need to sink with it. We have the strategic positions in place for us to engage in sustained struggle uh, on our own terms. Um, and we, we can, in effect, institute a, a minority government for the next four years. Uh, you know, through our control of these apparatus, we're going to stick with that and stick to our long-term aims and objectives, stall you out, um, master their politics, you know, uh, of the, like the class anger and frustration that, that uh, Megan just spoke of, which they have mastered. Trump said something the, the other day, uh, the first um, that was telling, uh, to, to let you know that this is an active conversation amongst their forces. He said that, you know, the Republican Party is now the party of, of he didn't say the working class, but of working people. He said that like two or three o'clock in the morning, right, from his own analysis. And that should have, sh- you know, shields down everybody's spine as to how they see, in particular, their own kind of populist project and what they're aiming for and how they're, they're looking to move particular forces. And that was, I think, spoken within their own strategic brilliance that you're leaving your flank covered because we know you have nothing in your fundamental plank and platform that is going to really clearly articulate working class interests. We can do that better right now in our own distorted way than you can. Uh, um, and you see that in all these distorted uh, ways, again, on some of these kind of statewide races of, um, you know, how this this uh, measure to save Lyft and Uber uh, in California, how that passed, you know, and the whole reclassification of workers and how many, you know, it was, it, you know, millions, if not billions of dollars went into that campaign to preserve it. But still, some folks had to vote for that and they voted it in office. And that represents a, a, a distorted sense of class consciousness amongst what we should consider uh, our base. Uh, lastly, um, you know, uh, why I was going back to this 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 point around you know Trump and his forces not going anywhere. I agree with Peter that that and fundamentally have. I think the inability of these forces to mediate conflict between themselves is lessened to such an extent that there are real real things about um, the possibility of civil war. I don't think we're talking about it tomorrow or next week, but that's a real possibility. And I want everybody to go back and really study uh, the period of the 1870s much more concisely, much more practically. I think we missed the boat in a lot of these analysis trying to make uh, Trump out to be a fascist or a proto-fascist and looking towards model uh, and examples from Europe and not dealing deeply with the construction of this project and how it's been borne out in the United States and the specificities here. So if there's anything this audience should be reading, Start with picking up uh, W.B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America as a fundamental text to understand where we are going potentially. It's not going to play out exactly that way. The forces are different. The period is different. The economy is different. But the fundamental contradictions around race and class are there in the mediated pieces of the force in play of how they're going to come up with another form of Hayes-Tilden compromise and on whose terms and who's going to be thrown under the bus. That is very much at play, and we need to understand that and build a politics around that particular set of constellation of forces relative to this empire and its own uniqueness. Thank you very much, uh, Carly. 
Uh, I just wanted to plug um, in relation to Du Bois, uh, an important piece that we published in Historical Materialism uh, not too long ago by uh, Brian Kelly, called Slave Self-Activity and the Bourgeois Revolution in the United States, Jubilee and the Boundaries of Black Freedom. That was an issue 27, uh, volume 27, issue three. Um, and of course, take this opportunity to, to uh, encourage everybody watching or participating to subscribe to Historical Materialism. We have currently a 25% discount on our um, four issues a year, 1,000 pages uh, of the journal. Uh, so I hope you'll take that up. Um, Peter. Excuse, excuse me, everybody. I'm sorry to intervene. I just got alerted to a, a situation I need to tend to uh, here where I'm at right now with, with uh, my family. So I'm going to step away in the hopes I can come back and make sure everything is okay. Okay. Sorry about that. See you later. Yeah, hope you come back. Good luck. And amen to Kali's last point about looking at Black Reconstruction, because uh, I've been thinking a lot about 1876-77 lately. Um, but I just want to respond um, briefly to a few of the questions. First, about the, the question of Trump not quitting, which I think is a question fundamentally about the future of the Republican Party. Uh, and I agree very much with what Kali said about Trump's achievement in bringing together these right-wing forces, QAnon and Mitch McConnell, into the same party. And his success has been remarkable. You look at the past few days, and all these one-time never-Trumpers, people like Lindsey Graham, like Ted Cruz, like Kevin McCarthy, have all jumped on the bandwagon of Trump saying, this election is being stolen, it's massive fraud, da-da-da. He's gotten further with getting his brand of lunacy broadly endorsed in the Republican leadership. Um, than one ever would have thought possible. And now he has a choice. If he sticks to insisting that he didn't lose the election, he's going to lose that. He can still be a force in the Republican Party if he's willing to budge to keep the coalition he's built together. And if he doesn't budge, then I think fundamentally there'll be a Trumpite split and what comes out of it will be something much, much smaller than the existing Republican Party. So that he, that's his choice. And he is a lunatic in many ways, so I'm not going to predict how his mind works. But I think fundamentally he has transformed the Republican Party into a far-right party and that will continue, whatever Trump does, in some way or another. Um, on the Green New Deal, I think the Green New Deal is still absolutely relevant and important. It's gone out of consciousness in the last few months because the debate between Biden and Trump was the debate around leaving or not leaving the Paris Agreement. Um, but now, if Biden is president, the United States will rejoin the Paris Agreement and people will see that the climate catastrophe is continuing that the Paris Agreement, and especially the inadequate nationally determined contributions, will not save the planet from the terrible things we've been seeing. So I think the Green New Deal will return to prominence as a, as a way of saying save the planet without doing it on ruling class terms that will totally destroy working class livelihoods, because that's the other 
then take emergency measures and kill the working class by doing so. The Green New Deal is a way of saving the planet without killing the working class. And I think people will go for it. There are different versions, obviously. Bernie Sanders' version is pretty good. Howie Hawkins' version was even better, frankly. But okay, one way or another, I think it will stay in the discourse. Um, how do we stay competitive in the global market while still taking progressive measures? We don't. Neoliberal globalization has been a formula for putting the working classes in the world in competition with one another. And once you accept that logic, the working class loses inevitably, because there's always a working class somewhere that will settle for less, that will have to settle for less in order to survive once you have that level of global competition. And the only solution is to counterpose a logic of solidarity to the logic of competition. And to talk about you know, what, what was talked about in the 1970s and 1980s, a new international economic order not built on uh, the dominance of the strongest, most productive, most cutthroat economies. I think it's the only way. And finally, um, how do we keep the coalition of resistance outside the Democratic Party or outside the the clutches of the leadership of the Democratic Party, I would I would say you have to reverse the law. I agree with Kali. We have to rethink a lot of things. And one of the things we have to rethink is our whole notion of party. Right now, a party is fundamentally an electoral vehicle that influences the movements. And we need to flip that around. We need to have movements that build political vehicles where the movements have the say. Um, nobody has a blueprint for that now. Um, I mean, in the past, once upon a time, the labor movement was supposed to control the socialist movement. Um, and today it has to be broader than that because the forces of social transformation are broader than that. But that's what we need, a reconception of how you build a party to reflect the needs, the demands of movements. And if I may respond very briefly just in one point to what Megan was saying against me, is that okay? Um, I think, Megan, you chose a framework for the comparison. First of all, again, I'm for a dirty break. So that's not the argument, clean break versus dirty break. But I think you miss, you, you framed the comparison between what works and what doesn't work in a very convenient, limited historical way. The fundamental turning point on the US left was 1936, when the majority of the Socialist Party and the Communist Party leadership chose to line up behind Franklin Roosevelt rather than um, behind what was still at that point a promising Labor Party movement. Um, since 1936, it's been very easy to caricature the, the whole left that's tried to do independent politics as marginal, isolated, insignificant. That's easy. But look back a little further. Compare, say, Bernie Sanders to Eugene V. Debs and what Debs' independent campaigns built over the course of his sex presidential campaigns. And I think Debs built more in a more lasting way, starting from the roots in the labor movement than Sanders has. And let me say, 
I was very enthusiastic about Sanders' two campaigns, just as I was very enthusiastic about Jesse Jackson's two campaigns, because they created an opening to talk outside the framework of a limited neoliberal politics. And I think the left was absolutely right to jump on that and run with it. But the, the whole positive dynamic stops at the moment that Sanders loses the fight inside the Democratic Party and gets behind the Democratic nominee. And I want to just end by mentioning uh, something that the economists, U.S. columnists said. Uh, in 2016, this columnist visited Youngstown, Ohio, traditional working class industrial center, and talked to workers who were full of distaste for, for Donald Trump, but particularly after Sanders lost the Democratic nomination and swung behind Hillary Clinton. These people were not going to vote for Hillary Clinton. And a lot of them ended up voting for distaste with distaste for Donald Trump. The same co columnist goes back in 2020 to Youngstown, talks to a lot of these same workers. And what is he, does he find? A lot of these same workers who had voted with distaste for Trump in 2016 have become Trump true believers in 2020. Because that's the way they see to express their rage and their rejection. And frankly, I think that's a reason why, unlike Debs, Sanders, over the course of two, two campaigns, went downhill rather than uphill. Because a lot of his working class base did not return to support him in 2020. If you get behind the Hillary Clintons and the Joe Bidens, you lose your rightful base. And I think that's the real message of what happens with dependent politics. Okay. Uh, I think that, that if I could respond a little bit, I think that that phenomenon is overblown. I mean, I think if you look at the numbers, you will not find very many people who supported Bernie Sanders in 2016 and then didn't support him in 20 in, in the and then voted for Trump and then became Trump true believers. I'm sure you can find examples of it. It's an enormous country, but I just don't think that it's a huge phenomenon. Um, I also while we're talking about this. Look, you talked about the Green New Deal and the importance of the Green New Deal in general as a framework and, and the fact that it's sort of fallen away at the moment due to other you know political concerns. But the, the idea that if Biden uh, re-signs re us to the Paris Accord, then we'll see that it's not working and then the Green New Deal can return into our consciousness as an alternative. I agree with that, but I don't think it's automatic or spontaneous. I think that it will agree, it will return to Americans' consciousness as as a um, as a, a means of tackling the climate crisis if it is championed by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Jamal Bowman, and Cory Bush, who all are currently refer to themselves, actually not all of them do. I think Ilhan and Jamal are a little iffy on this, but the others refer to themselves as democratic socialists while also being members of the Democratic Party. Now, arguably, they would not have won if they hadn't run on the Democratic Party ballot line. And I think that's something that detractors of the dirty break strategy need to genuinely answer. Do you think that these people would have won if they had not run on the Democratic Party ballot line? No. And because we don't have very many examples. And then looked for a break. Peter, Peter. Sorry, that, can, I, can I clarify that that's actually what's happening in a longer term sense? Now, these particular people, I think, have different, these particular politicians are not united in their strategy. But that's the dirty break is about getting in and then looking for an opportunity to split 
And when you have a handful, it's not big enough. Like I said earlier, I think that you would self-marginalize if you split right now. I think that we need to wait for an opportunity and build toward an opportunity where we're, when we are splitting, we're taking millions of people with us, not just a handful. So I think that this, what you are, what you're talking about is a clean break. You're, you're demanding a clean break. The dirty break strategy is that you get in, build up your forces, use your ability to organize people, uh, use the, uh, uh, the bully pulpit to advocate for things like the Green New Deal, for example, and to build movements on the ground to the point where you feel that when you split, you don't simply marginalize yourself, frankly, as the Green Party has done. And I would challenge you to answer the question whether or not uh, Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have turned more people off of capitalism and onto socialism, or Jill Stein and Howie Hawkins. And I think objectively, the answer is the former. I'm one of those people. Like, I'm one of those people. I became a socialist because of Bernie Sanders' first campaign. And that's why I find it kind of absurd to suggest that people are only being pulled into the orbit of the Democratic Party and only being pulled back into the orbit of supporting capitalism. Because my personal experience and the experience of tens of thousands of members of the Democratic Socialists of America who are at the moment engaged in intensive, in many cases, intensive Marxist political education, while also being in, while also pursuing a rank and file strategy and going into the labor movement to be socialist in the labor movement, while also, you know, building um, strike support, while also, um, you know, um, building support through DSA for um, down ballot electoral campaigns, while also um, making coalitions with other movements in their localities and their cities and states. So I know that this is actually happening. I don't think it's at the scale that we need to get it done yet. But I don't think that it's hopeless or a lost cause. And I think that, you know, if we didn't have, if AOC didn't win, then she wouldn't be able to popularize the Green New Deal, which she has done. Um, you may you may think that Howie Hawkins' version of the Green New Deal is better, but very few people know about Howie Hawkins' version of the Green New Deal. And that's something that we have to genuinely contend with instead of simply waving it away. We also have to genuinely contend with the spoiler problem. Like the, it's not it's not something that I'm inventing right now as an excuse. It is an actual problem in American politics that if you are a minority, you will be blamed for stealing the votes of the majority party that is that is larger than your own party until you can credibly demonstrate that actually you have your own social base that is distinct from the social base of the other party. So we have to build that base through some means. And the dirty break, while I think at the moment a bit vague, unfortunately, is um, is a an attempt to actually just acknowledge these basic institutional barriers to making a clean break without simply ruining our chances to build any kind of mass movement whatsoever using electoral politics. Megan, I had a, a question for you, if you don't mind. Um, so, you know, I, I think possibly one of the things that Peter is uh, underplaying is, is the success of, of, of DSA, both in um, recruitment um, in reaching new layers and reaching recruiting people like yourself who who, were, who became socialist via the Sana's campaign, and in beginning to change the ideological um, atmosphere. But isn't it possible that part of the success of DSA, which is a real success, as I as I would repeat, um, is to do with a particular sequence? Um, the Democratic Party was in opposition. There was um, a very positive dialectic that um, was created between, on the one hand, a series of these kind of insurgent electoral campaigns that were able to overthrow um, 
you know, establishment uh, Democratic Party politicians on the one hand, uh, very lucky in some of the people that they managed to elect with their, their charisma and their, um, their, uh, their, the way that they broke from the, the traditional image of a, of a Democratic Party politician. And on the other hand, almost simultaneously, you know, um, the reemergence of large-scale social struggles, the, the teacher stri- strikes and so on. Now, all of that was a very positive and, you know, almost, you know, God-given opportunity for um, an organization like DSA on the back of, you know, all the things we know about the, the social and economic trends in the U.S. and how it affects particular generations and, and cohorts and so on. So, you know, all of that worked out very well. Um, and I, I agree with you that, that some comrades who, who come from the, the, the far left, you know, are somewhat disdainful of that because they feel they've seen it all before and so on, or, or they see the limitations of the strategic um, perspective. But isn't it possible, at least hypothetically, that this was the product of a particular sequence, and that sequence is closing today, um, and that um, this, the result is going to be a series of individuals um, elected um, who you have no control over, who have no accountability to DSA, who you have no way of sanctioning or, you know, really engaging in any kind of, um, you know, party-type process, who will do their own thing and make their own choices. And probably those choices are very likely to be choices we wouldn't be happy with. And the, the dialectic of being in opposition, uh, having these um, insurgent uh, electoral campaigns and having these social struggles is not likely to recur in the same way. So isn't it, whatever way, you know, what, whatever we decide about whether dirty break is, is strategically um, a, a positive option or not, um, isn't, it, isn't it certainly the case the situation is going to shift very radically and we have to adapt? And, and think about how that might affect, you know, you know, business as usual is not going to be the the the, the option on the table. I completely agree with that. Actually, I think it's really critical that we understand that DSA's growth is, in many cases, like you said, a product not merely of like a single generative uh, event, the first Bernie Sanders campaign, but actually a series of events. Though I think that you know, if you talk to members who joined in the major the major membership bump in, in, in late 2016 and early 2017, they will tell you that it was Bernie Sanders introducing them to the concept of democratic socialism that made them want to seek out a democratic socialist organization to join. But yes, the sequence of events is, is very specific and unique, and we can't necessarily rely on it to replicate. Um, I will say that I'm heartened by the fact that about 1,200 people have joined DSA since like in the last couple of days. This is in the context of a Biden victory, which suggests to me that um, the that um, what one concern that I've long had, uh, if the Democrats are in charge, then it sort of um, takes away that kind of dynamic, which is that the feckless, like useless Democrats are losing to the right, which is why you should join DSA or something like that. Um, the fact that people are sort of flooding into DSA at the moment, I mean, literally, as we speak, there are people signing up to DSA, which I will reiterate is not happening for other socialist organizations in the United States. Um, so I think that um, the fact that people are flooding in right now is, is heartening, but we can't necessarily um, rely on that in the future. As for an overarching strategy for DSA, 
First of all, I want to emphasize that we've been talking a lot about electoral strategy, but DSA is not primarily an electoral vehicle. It has a very it relies on electoral politics, but DSA DSA does a ton of other stuff besides electoral politics. Just genuinely, it does, um, and it's critical that we continue to not to not rely solely on electoral politics. And secondly. The main task, I think, I laid out three tasks, I think, for the left, and I would say that these go for DSA as well, which is the labor movement, building, strengthening socialist institutions, so in this case, DSA, and um, building an electoral bench. But the overarching task, the deeper one and the harder one to crack, is as follows. We currently have a class-focused organization, and I'm stealing this um, formulation from Leo Panich and Sam Gendon. We don't yet have a class-rooted organization. We must turn our class-focused organization into a class-rooted organization. And that's going to require a lot of... It's going to require hard work because in reality, um, DSA's class composition is not um, perfect of the, of the world. A lot of morally mobile... For whatever reason, that that is the phenomenon that is happening. You know, different sectors of the class um, organized spontaneously throughout history at different times, and certainly we wouldn't be the first socialist organization to start off not being deeply rooted in the proletariat. And others have managed to um, figure out that puzzle before. So I think that that's our task. Um, but it's not going to happen on its own. It's going to require um, members of organizations, DSA and other organizations like DSA, to um, uh, intentionally strategize about what would root the root the group in the working class. Um, when when there when the first bump happened in 2016, there were rumors flying around that some chapters um, disappointed with who had shown up to their first big meetings, noticing that it was all people who were not, you know, the, the working class of people's dreams. It was a lot of people who graduated from, uh, you know, colleges and people uh, and uh, people who, you know, had jobs that you might consider, well, white collar jobs, um, that some of these chapters were actually not calling their own membership lists because they wanted they wanted a different membership. Okay, well, that's a good metaphor for us to consider. That's the opposite of what you should do. In fact, you need to, like I've said many times throughout this panel, politics is using what you have to get what you want. You have to use the base you have to get the base that you want. We can't demobilize because we think that DSA is imperfect. We have to put these people to use. We have to do intensive Marxist political education. We need to codrify as many people as we can. And we need to, I mean, right now there's a project happening in DSA of, um, especially YDSA, which is the college branch. Um, these, these young people are coming out of college. They don't have um, great career prospects, as you might imagine, <laughs> economic crisis and all, and sort of general economic malaise. Um, union jobs make sense for people. And if you're a committed socialist, well, all the better, because we do need committed socialists in the labor movement, building, building, um, building unions and building them into fighting militant radical unions. Um, and so that's happening through DSA at the moment. I mean, I can assure you, I'm, I know people who are involved in this building a sort of rank and file pipeline. And um, this is the kind of thing that I think is really critical for organizations like DSA to take seriously as a next step for our strategy. And I bring all of this up because, like you said, Sebastian, we can't rely on the future. We don't actually know that the next sequence of events is going to spontaneously push people, regardless of whatever section of the working class they belong to, into our orbit. Um, we can do our best to 
orchestrate scenarios like that and we can do our best to take advantage of whatever scenario happens. To the latter point, I think it's very critical to be very intentional about rooting ourselves in the working class. And I do see that happening and it makes me feel makes me feel heartened. Great. Thank you, Megan. Peter, any, any last words you want to add? Yes, please. Um, I'm wrapping up now, is the idea. Um, I think so. We've, we're going on nearly two hours, so... Um, yeah. yeah, okay. I will wrap up in five minutes. Um, and since no other um, questions have been asked from other participants, I'll just respond to Megan on a couple points. One is the spoiler problem, which I take absolutely seriously. Um, every political system socialists operate in they have to take account of the specificities of that system. The U.S. is very peculiar. You have to take account of that. The Electoral College is very peculiar, and we're against it, but we need to take account of it. And its consequence is that in this election, as in virtually all presidential elections, there are about 10 states that were decisive, and the rest weren't because they were safe Biden states or safe Trump states. So I had in this election, as in 2016, a safe state, swing state position. I voted for Howie Hawkins in New York State because that was a safe thing to do if you wanted to defeat Trump and build an independent left. And if I had been in Michigan or Pennsylvania, I would have voted for Biden. Um, that's my position. And the other peculiarity of the United States that I think we need to take account of is a federal system and it's a very diverse system. And right now it's very polarized between rural areas, suburban areas and urban areas. And in urban areas, key urban areas, working class centers, as Kim Moody in particular has pointed out, you have again and again, virtual Democratic Party single parties where the spoiler problem does not operate. So, you know, in San Francisco, for example, where I lived for eight years, at times the Green Party has been the second party of the city, not the Republican Party. There's no reason to worry about the spoiler problem in San Francisco. And frankly, at Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez won her district, but I don't think she has a big problem with the spoiler problem either. Um, again, you look back far enough in history, I think AOC's district is the functional equivalent of the district that Meyer Landon represented in the Lower East Side in the 19-teens, and the district which overlaps with hers, which Vito Marcantonio represented for the American Labor Party um, uh, in, in the Bronx in the 1940s and 50s. And they managed to be independents in Congress, not in the sway of the Democratic Party, and they beat the spoiler problem in those particular districts. And I think it can be done in particular areas as a start. And last point, Sebastian thinks I underplayed the success of DSA. I don't think so. I've been thrilled. As I said, I've been thrilled by Bernie Sanders' campaigns and the success of DSA, which comes out of that. I was thrilled that uh, when DSA voted for BDS, I was thrilled when DSA voted for reparations. I was thrilled when DSA voted to leave the Second International. I was thrilled, particularly when DSA adopted a rank and file orientation to the unions. It's all wonderful. And I wish I could be as enthused about the debates that have been happening inside DSA in the question of the Democratic Party and political independence, because I don't think 
the, the options have been on the table in those debates in the same way as they have been in those other areas. And I'll stop there. Thanks. Uh, I think, PJ, I said possibly, I qualified it, possibly, possibly underplaying, but there we go. Um, we can look at the tape later. Um, Megan, any uh, last comments? No, I just want to um, thank you for having me on. I mean, this uh, um, this is a debate that I've had before, and it's one I'll have again. And I'm sure the same is true for you, Peter, because this is one of the most vexing problems that we're facing as a movement. I'm glad we got the opportunity to talk about it here. Um, uh, I think that... Um, we uh, haven't come to a consensus, and I think that that's perfectly understandable because we represent two different perspectives on this important question, both of which are, are extraordinarily valid. Um, I, um, I guess to, to end on a note of um, of agreement, uh, I agree that actually it's not it's not true that the spoiler effect is a problem everywhere, and that when we go to build an independent party apparatus, which is the purpose of a democratic uh, dirty break strategy, is is to um, strategize intensely about how we get ourselves to that particular point in a way that is um, safe and effective, um, that we should begin um, by by running uh, our own candidates, our own disciplined candidates on, ballot, on our own ballot line in districts where we think that the spoiler effect will not be so pronounced. Um, in the meantime, um, I think that uh, DSA can, and I hope it will, um, behave in some of the manner of, of mass parties of of the past um, right now, because there's nothing stopping us just because we don't have our own ballot line at the moment. There's nothing stopping us from um, developing, for example, mechanisms to discipline candidates and being really intentional about who we endorse and not doing rubber stamp endorsements and trying to actually send up our own members. This is one thing that I'm always banging the drum on inside of DSA is that our own people, um, and by our own people, I mean homegrown. I mean people that we know and trust because we know that they, you know, they fold chairs after our political education meetings or they keep the calendar for the chapter. I mean, these people should be the people that we are trying to run for local and 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 eventually state office and eventually, you know, um, all the way up, right? Um, and we'll have that will have better success keeping those people disciplined than people who come from the outside ask for our endorsement and they seem good enough and we give it to them. So I think that we should be more critical um, about um, about that dynamic and we should start trying to behave as a sort of proto-party now um, as we maneuver ourselves toward building the party that all of us on this call know that we need in order to actually win anything resembling socialism. Thank you, Megan. So I want to encourage everybody to uh, think about buying uh, two books in particular, Bigger Than Bernie, How We Got From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism uh, by Megan Day and Micah Utrecht, and uh, Peter Drucker's book, um, Warped, uh, Gay Normality and Queer Anti-Capitalism, which is part of the Historical Materialism book series and is available <coughs> from Haymarket Books, Haymarket Books, which has currently a 50% discount on all historical materialism titles. So there's simply no excuse for not buying them now. And I also want to draw people's attention to the 25% discount we have for individual subscriptions to Historical Materialism Journal. With that done, I want to thank all three speakers. And uh, I'm sure this debate will continue. And uh, we will perhaps, with luck, be able to have it in person in the glorious surroundings of London next November, um, full of humidity, uh, moistness, and bad food, as we love so much. 
um, and perhaps we will be on a bit different political terrain. So thank you very much, and uh, onward and upward. Thank you for moderating, Sebastian. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.